the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you here on this Monday afternoon. Not only is it a Monday, it is the Monday after Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving break, man? It was Thanksgiving break. I don't, I'm Did not you get, in school. I meant from the radio, at least. <laughs> I don't know what you got at your church, but... What are you doing for summer vacation this summer, Brian? <laughs> we had a break. No, we I worked. the show. <laughs> Don't see the show. Thanksgiving was lovely. How was yours? Oh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was, uh, we hosted for the first time and, uh, that came with its own unique stresses, but it was fun. And then we got away for a couple of days. So it was good. Where'd you go? It was good. But then Black Friday, you went to Black Friday. Do you, uh, are where'd, you, where'd you go? Where did you go somewhere? We did. We went up to, uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law have a cabin outside the Dells that we love to go to. It's out in the middle of the woods. Nice. Uh, it's not it's not a rustic cabin, let's put it that way. Like, it's, it's like a heated tile floor kind of situation. It's it's a nice place. It's yeah. a nice place. And so we love to go up there because you're out in the middle of the woods doing nothing. It's like 30 minutes outside the Dell. So uh, Thanksgiving night, we drove up there and came back yesterday. So uh, it was it was super relaxing. And all we do is sit around and watch football and eat and then watch some more football. So how about those lions? Yep. About like my giants yesterday. <laughs> Jeez Louise. <laughs> Yep, yep. You you uh you prophesied, if you will, of uh no. I just pay attention to patterns. Exactly it's, of uh, that, that the lions will ruin your uh, ruin your Thanksgiving I and do every. I can set my watch to it. Yeah, that was a that was a brutal game. Thanks, thanks, Brian. Yeah, again, I think I can't, I rushed home to watch the Giants Packers game yesterday. That was uh mm-hmm. that was also no good. Are you one of those people then who on Thursday night or Friday morning goes out shopping? Have you ever been a Black Friday guy? Have you ever done that? Okay, so this is a trick question. Okay. But it wasn't meant to be, but my go ahead. brothers and I though, what we used to do when I was in high school and even into college a little bit is we would stay up all night Thanksgiving and then we would dress up like distance runners from the 70s. <laughs> And go to Black Friday sales and just run the aisleways like we were in a race and then buy nothing. How uh, – okay. How did you even guys come up with this? Like the, what is the first time that this became the idea? Because that is one of the most random things I've ever heard. I'm sure it started with sleep deprivation and kind of went on from there. We're like, wouldn't it be hilarious? Like we would make signs and stuff. We would dress in <laughs> costumes. We just – because when my brothers and I, we we're already staying up late anyway because, you know, conversation just kind of keeps yep, – yep. it's like, you know, I don't know how you are with your siblings. But it for us, it just – it's like, oh, it's 3 in the morning. We should just stay up till 5 and then head <laughs> over to going. Target or whoever's got an interesting – and it's – I mean, it looking back, it was uh, pretty remarkable to get kind of a firsthand glimpse at some of the insanity of Black Friday shopping. I did see a video yesterday a couple of days ago of – 
uh, and I'm sure it was just, you know, one store, but it was Black Friday shopping in Canada. And like the doors opened and everyone calmly <laughs> walked into the store and they're like, slowly and literally like shaking hands with the staff. And I was like, oh, they do things different That's there. Canada yet again. Canada. So, man, they win. I just like that story. Not that you guys are up late and are like, hey, let's go to Black Friday sale. Like we're up. We might as well go. But that's like, let's put on distance running outfits and. Yeah, that's go, sort of the Simpkins way. There you go. Well, Black Friday, and then today is Cyber Monday. Woo! And I don't know if you woke up to all sorts of emails just going, buy our stuff, buy our stuff. No. Here's my question for us, because then, ironically, after Black Friday, after Cyber Monday, tomorrow becomes Giving Tuesday. It's kind of like, whatever you have left over. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Consider giving. Here's my question. Uh, we are now in the in the throes of of. Uh, purchasing time for Christmas, right? It starts Thanksgiving night or at least on Black Friday. You've got Cyber Monday today. I read somewhere about the billions of dollars that will be spent just today, just online. They're uh, estimating $29 billion between Thursday and today. That's unbelievable. I wonder how they estimate that. That was the first thing I thought when they were talking about in today's show. I'm like, how do you come up with that number? But smarter well, people. They, they already have some of the numbers. They spent we seven point four billion online on Black Friday, four point two billion on Thanksgiving Day. Wow, is, that's a whole other rant for a different show. But that's <laughs> that's just show. that's just online. Uh, Two point nine billion dollars came from smartphones alone. Uh, oh, so I read that. I ever saw that. I mean, on yesterday on Good Morning America, they said. This is the first year that more online purchasing will be done from the smartphone than from tablets or laptops or whatever. They've Which, always been predicting that it's going to flip. And the, at least in this report, they said this is the year it actually flips. And just for some context, to solve the water purity crisis oh, here globally, I think is like globally, 11, it's like $11 billion. Like the single greatest threat to human life on planet Earth <laughs> could be solved for a fraction of what we just spent over two days on online purchases. Why do you have to take the fun out of Black Friday? Sorry. Oh, you're a Black Friday guy. Sorry, my I've bad. literally never got out for Black Friday. No. Never done it. Well, apparently you don't have to go out anymore. You can just, uh, I saw an advertisement a couple years ago for a Brown Thursday sale. I was like, what? No, that day already has a name. It's called Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's got a name. I was so, that was like my most get off my lawn. I was like, literally the day dedicated to being grateful for all that we have. They've rebranded Brown Thursday. Brown Thursday. What a just, terrible name. To just, yeah, just buy more stuff earlier. If uh, you can put a color with the name, now we can sell stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's the, that's hey, the magic. Hey, what are you doing for Beige Wednesday? Yeah. Oh, yeah, must be going out. Oh, I'm going out for Mauve Tuesday. <laughs> so you hit at it but here's the question uh we are people are just going crazy buying things and uh it's that time of year how do we live with contentment in this time of year how do you not get uh how do you not get just uh caught up in all of this what sale can i find how much money can i spend how much do i have to budget for christmas and just lose what's going on right now because you you point out the irony of the fact that we move from thanksgiving uh, what are we thankful for? To in the same day, what can I get a good deal on? Right. If not the next day, what would be some tips to entering the Christmas season, maybe with a little more contentment than what our culture uh, allows for? Well, and I think there's probably a couple of sides to this. I think one of the things we often miss is that we assume it's just like a flip that we switch. Like, oh, I should be content. Like contentment is a discipline. It's like a muscle you build. You don't just go to the gym once and now you're fit. Like, it's something that you have to work at. So I think sometimes we miss that when we think, oh, man, everyone's just one sermon away from, yeah. like, finding contentment. If I just tell them that it's Jesus, then they'll all find <laughs> contentment in Jesus, and then none of us will be 
consumed Good by point. consumerism. So I, I think it has to be we have to play the long game. And I think sometimes, and I heard someone talk about this yesterday, you know, that some of the the guilt, the crash following Black Friday sort of feels similar to a lot of people like the crash following Christmas. There's all this anticipation. I got this $30 off this TV. It shows up and you're like, oh, I mean, I'm I grateful for the that. deal, but I guess that doesn't. <laughs> but I do have to say, though, I, kept, I posted something on Friday about it and someone shared it in our friend Catherine McNeil. Uh, comment. What I wrote was, if we spent half the energy that we put into getting the best deals and into caring for one another, our world would be a better place. Mm. But she said, if we cared for each other well, maybe there wouldn't be so much income inequality, such that hardworking families wouldn't have to purchase what their families need only on the day when the prices are at their lowest of the year. So mm. she's thinking much more systemically, and I I would love to see <laughs> some of the statistics behind how much of it is like people buying family necessities on Black Friday versus. They're buying their sixth TV for their house. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the, I, I don't know the, the data there. It's a valid point because all you ever see on TV is the guy pushing out the 70 inch television out of Target at three right. in the morning. And throwing a punch <laughs> as he does so, right? <laughs> that is always the craziest. But I, I wanted to start this this afternoon by, by just having that conversation about uh, I think increasingly this season leading up to Christmas, if there's going to be contentment, it takes legitimate work. Yeah, like it takes legitimate work. So as we close the segment out, what would be one step for somebody? Is it their book you you could uh, tell people to read, or is it just you know have the conversation, just give some thought to it? Uh, I think one of the enemies of contentment is comparison. I think mm. paying attention to where and how we do that because it's not just about you know like we went to a friend's house on Saturday and we like walked into their new basement and my first thought was my basement will never be this awesome <laughs> just it's instant comparison it's in, it's yes. the, what's the what's the quote comparison is the thief of joy mm-hmm. like it's hard to find real joy in what you have or what you're doing when you're constantly comparing your state of affairs to everyone else's yeah, and point. i think uprooting that like paying attention to where that's at but there's there's a lot of great books there's a lot that scripture has to say yeah. about you know cutting that off of the past yeah. and, you know, getting to the root of the issue. And I think that, especially this season, is a really important thing to be mindful of in our own hearts. That's real good. Well, happy Cyber Monday to everybody. And uh, hopefully we can live uh, with a contentment this season uh, that is difficult to find. Well, coming up next, uh, well-known theologian and author Wayne Grunem has changed his mind about something. And it's an interesting article we're going to look at next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Monday afternoon, the beginning of December. We are in full uh, sprint mode to uh, to Christmas. Uh, it hit me. I'm going to make you jealous now. I just told you in the first segment while I, that I was away. I'm like a month, a month and a half away to going away for my 20th anniversary with my wife to somewhere really warm with no children. You, oh get, away, you get away a lot. This is like just cross <laughs> off the days right now. We figured we made it 20 years. We might as well do something Good fun. for you. We might as well do something fun. Uh, you can reach us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Uh, you can find us online at 1160hope.com or find our podcast uh, wherever it is you find our podcast. Go ahead uh, and subscribe, rate, review, and uh, we are grateful uh, to those of you who do that. I had an interaction with somebody the other day uh, who told me, hey, I listen to your podcast uh, regularly, and I was waiting for like the, and I really enjoy it, or and it challenges me, or or I hate it. Yeah. Like just this, it was just, 
hey, I listen to your podcast a lot. And then they walked away. It was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you really are a words of affirmation guy. If they said a lot, that's a compliment no, enough. but even Brian. if they had said, and hey, I, you know, I don't really like it all that much. <laughs> there was like, it just felt like there was something else coming. And then it was like. Maybe he realized halfway through telling you that he didn't like it, but then felt nervous about telling what, you. That's what I'm taking. I, I listened to it a lot. Oh, shoot. Yep. Uh, I guess I got to walk away now. Yep, yep, that was that was nice. So it, it made me laugh. It made me laugh. Well, uh, Wayne Grudem. A lot of you have probably heard of Wayne Grudem before. If you are in the – do you think most people have heard of Wayne Grudem? No. That pastor thing? Yes. Okay. Well, Wayne Grudem <laughs> is a uh, – he's a biblical theologian. He is a professor. He is a uh, prolific author uh, of, of pretty uh, – usually of pretty conservative theology. He is one of the – uh, leading complementarian theologians out there that, that complementarians go to. Uh, and so with all of that said, Wayne Grudem came out in an interview the other day or in a paper and said something that a lot of people were very uh, interested by. And let me read some of this for you. It says, for years, biblical theologian Wayne Grudem has said that for Christians, divorce was only permissible in cases of infidelity and desertion. But on Tuesday, Grudem told Christianity Today that some new biblical research has changed his mind, and he now believes physical and emotional abuse is grounds for divorce. But at least part of his change of heart appears to come from personal experiences with people who are trapped in abusive marriages. He writes, my wife Margaret and I became aware of some heartbreaking examples of such thing as humiliation and degradation that had continued for decades. And another case of physical battering that had gone on for decades. In all of these situations, the abused spouse had kept silent, believing that a Christian's duty was to preserve the marriage unless there was adultery or desertion, which has not happened. But Grudem also says he now believes the Bible makes room for this new interpretation. His exegesis involves 1 Corinthians 7.15, which says, But if an unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Um Grudem says he believes the phrase in such circumstances refers to more cases than just desertions. In fact, he found that in ancient Greek, the phrase in such circumstances often refers to a broad number of circumstances, not just the circumstances uh, uh, stated right there. As Ruth Graham notes, this reads a little like Grudem starting with a more humane, compassionate conclusion than the one he'd long held in reverse engineering uh, interestingly, Grudem joins a slim majority of evangelical pastors as just over 55% say divorce is permissible in the case of abuse, according to LifeWay research. So there's a lot there. When you first read this about Wayne Grudem uh, kind of going that way uh, and changing his theology, if you will, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, first off, I'm grateful for someone like Grudem who is, you know, an academic. He's a scholar and a theologian. The fact that he's still reading and still researching and yeah. still growing and evolving is probably a good lesson for all of us. I think a lot of times, especially, and again, you mentioned this earlier, like he's probably not as big a celebrity to just the general listener, but in the pastoral world, he's a, he's a big name. I think sometimes when you have some level of success or notoriety based on a particular position or a particular way of seeing the world, there is a temptation to kind of just perpetuate that position because yeah. you're like, oh, I'm... Wayne Grudem, I'm the this guy. Yeah. And I think the the temptation of like, well, even if I do read something new, I have to keep holding this up because I have this whole followership. I have this whole fan base or whatever you call it that sort of needs me to be this guy. And I think a lot of times we see that with 
pastors and scholars mm-hmm. and theologians that they'll they'll almost resist growing or evolving or even in any way shifting their positions because you know and we talked about cancel culture too a lot of times there can be a lot of um vitriol yeah. from people like oh oh so now you changed your mind on this like i think about even sermons that i gave 15 years ago i've gone back and read the notes or listened to the sermon and thought yes i can't believe somebody let me <laughs> yeah. say that you know i'm so grateful that i've been surrounded by people that have helped kind of continue to challenge me and help me grow and so in that regard, I'm, I'm grateful also, and I, it probably is worth saying, I agree with him. Yeah. So, so I imagine if like if he was changing his mind in a direction that I didn't agree with, I might be a little less excited <laughs> yes. or supportive. Yes. Yeah, but like in general, I'm like, yes, I'm grateful that you're growing and evolving. Also, yes, I, I think you're right. And I, I, the irony is, think about the pastors or the theologians or the authors that you most respect. It's those who are constant. I'll speak for myself. It's those who are wrestling with their theology. It's those who are open to saying, I don't have it. I haven't cornered the market on all truth. Like I'm constantly kind of going back and forth. What do you think about this notion that uh, his, uh, at least the inference that some of his change came from personal experience, people he came in contact with? Because you do hear some people who who tried to, no pun intended, divorce theology from experience like yeah. those shouldn't match so what do you think about the fact that a lot of this is coming like he's like i i came in contact with people who were in the midst of this and it really kind of affected how my theology works on this yeah R- richard Rohr writes about he calls it the tricycle and he says the tricycle of scripture tradition and experience that's good and he says that it really requires all three and he kind of you know elsewhere unpacks like what happens when you only have two of the three like just scripture and tradition or just experience in scripture. And he says, I think for good biblical scholarship, and it's sort of a challenge, not just for pastors and theologians, but for people in general to, to lose one of those three ends up with a pretty lopsided hermeneutic, a pretty yeah. lopsided interpretation, which, you know, I, I think it is worth saying there are plenty of spaces where it's just all experience and sort of the general True. message is, Hey, just feel what you want to feel, think what you want to think, and we'll see you next week. I obviously I don't think that's good either, right. but I think it is. And each tradition and each denomination probably leans more heavily to one of these than the other, and that's always a little bit of a dance. But uh, I, I, honestly, I'm with Roar on this one. I think experience is an important component coupled with yeah. tradition and scripture. And again, hopefully, this is uh, something that we've said before, but yeah. all in the context of community mm-hmm. like that communal life is, I think, just as important. Whether you're a pastor or theologian or you're new to faith or somewhere in between, uh, I think I think it's an important thing to consider. Yeah, I was, as we close this up, I was surprised. I don't know if you were surprised. I was surprised that number was so low from Lifeway Research that 55% of evangelical pastors think divorce is permissible and abuse. Yeah, Maybe I, wasn't. I shouldn't be surprised by that. I wasn't surprised. It really does break my heart. It shows that we have a lot more work to do in this yeah. area, but I, yeah, I honestly wasn't surprised. Well, if you're out there and you are in an abusive relationship, we encourage you to get the help, to get out, get get to safety, uh, and get the help uh, that you need. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about, like we do each Monday, about what did we preach this past weekend. Uh, we're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, 
subscribe, rate, review. Uh, we always say that helps us. We're not sure how, but that helps us. And uh, we appreciate you helping us. So go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. <laughs> it's Cyber Monday. Give somebody our podcast for uh, Christmas. <laughs> I don't think you, I don't think you understand Cyber Monday. No. <laughs> it's online. It's <laughs> well, true. It's cyber. What did you get me? I got you this free podcast. <laughs> I don't even like these guys. Oh, that's funny. Well, we're glad that you're joining us today. As we've uh, mentioned many times since we started the show almost a year ago, uh, that Ian and I are both pastors. That is our primary jobs. I'm the uh, pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien. Ian is a pastor at uh, Community Christian Church in Naperville. And uh, with that, we get the opportunity, the privilege on a regular basis to preach. And uh, that makes Monday a weird day. You often are feeling kind of in a fog, but also uh, you look back. Do you have more Mondays where you go, man, that was awesome yesterday. I killed it. Or more Mondays of like, not regret, but like, Oh, if I'd only said that, if I'd only done that, how, what is your kind of Monday morning quarterbacking, if you will? Probably more the latter. Is it? Yeah. Just kind of like, oh, if, if I'd only – I missed that point. Or Yeah. I mean, I, pro- I probably scrutinize to a nearly obsessive degree at times where you're like, oh, man, I was late on that slide. Or, I oh, I totally oh. stumbled on that word. Bethlehem Ephratha. Oh, man. You know, that's, <laughs> that little stuff will stand out. Stuff that I, I'm assuming most people wouldn't even don't, remember don't. 24 hours later. But that's, that's sort of how my you brain You listen works. back. How quickly do you listen back? Usually that afternoon. So you'll preach Sunday morning and listen back Sunday afternoon? Usually, yeah. Man, you and I are so different. (laughs) (laughs) It probably makes you a better preacher than me because going back I don't think that's true. Come on. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Different. That's right. So uh, I did not preach yesterday. I said earlier that for Thanksgiving, my family and I got away with some of my wife's family. And uh, it was a wonderful break and now kind of excited to get into the Christmas season uh, of preaching. Uh, But I do know that Scott... Uh, Scott Murray, the other pastor at our church, he finished up our series in Daniel, which has been uh, a challenging series for me to preach through. It's been a couple months of digging through an Old Testament book, a lot of it apocalyptic. And so that becomes very difficult. Like, what do I do with this crazy vision? And now what do I do with this crazy vision? But I do know he ended yesterday at the very end of the book. It talks about uh, how essentially how God's people will find rest, no matter how crazy life is around us. Uh, you can have rest. And and I was kind of jealous letting him preach that one because it's such a home run message. It's yeah, like, right. hey, you can have rest. Apart from Christ, we don't have that rest. But in Christ, we have that rest, no matter how crazy uh, or upside down life feels. Uh, and so uh, hopefully that's an encouragement for some of you out there because you might have done Thanksgiving and you were like, I have nothing to be thankful for. I'm just struggling. I don't like my where my life is at, whatever it could be. Uh, and and you need a, a, some good news today. Well, even at the end of that Old Testament book, uh, it gives the promise of rest and of God's victory, uh, even in the midst of all the craziness we go through. So that's the end of the book of Daniel. And at our church now, we're heading into uh, the Christmas season and very uh, excited for that. You said you preached. Did you preach at the uh, Yellow Box? A different I did. Church? I did preach the Yellow Box. Before we go there, though, while we're on the topic of Scott Murray, I, I do just have to say something. So he uh, commented on Twitter recently. Oh, really? Something that I posted, yeah, which brought me to his profile, which 
has his listing right now as his previous church. Uh-oh. And I think uh, you're the boss there, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, you need to have a conversation with Mr. At Scott underscore Murray. He might be just holding out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the it's the cover photo and his description. And uh, yeah, I, I called him out and he didn't respond. So <laughs> <laughs> he might not be friends anymore. We will be having a meeting later today. <laughs> just wanted to air that over the airwaves for... All of Chicago Land. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I thought he'd be okay with it. Yep. All right. So we started a new series called BC, which uh, we're calling Before Christmas. So I got so many emails this week already. Like, you know, that's not what it stands for, right? I'm like, I we know it's we were being clever. On some of those you had to play with people. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm I'm tempted to do that a lot. So we're gonna we're gonna actually uh, leading up to Christmas. We're going to uh, follow a couple of the prophets from the Old Testament oh. and some of the prophecies that um, that they were kind of pointing towards. So we were talking on uh, Sunday about Micah, promise of peace. And, you know, if you know anything about the, the timeline of Micah, the northern kingdom has just fallen to the hands of the Assyrians. And he's a part of the southern kingdom, which will eventually fall to the hands of, I think, the Babylonians. And so he's in the midst of, like, raging war and chaos yeah. and, like, nothing as is as it should be. And then in Micah chapter 5, he issues this promise of peace, and uh, it's actually a pretty remarkable passage where he says, you know, first he says Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And then here in verse 5 it says, um, and they will live securely, uh, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Mm. So what we often, I think, miss in English translations is peace for us feels like just the absence of conflict, right? Peace. Yes. Like I hear people a lot of times are like, I just want some peace and quiet. Yep. It just sort of means everyone kind of rest, just kind of be thing. still, which is an important yep. part of that. But the yeah. word here is actually the word shalom. And the Hebrew word shalom is a whole lot more about like wholeness and completeness and mm. fullness. There's a, a pastor named Matt Woodley. And he said, in the Bible, God's peace, God's shalom, meant much more than simply the absence of war. Shalom meant not only inner peace or spiritual peace, it meant wholeness and completeness throughout all creation. It meant the end of injustice. It meant the rich would no longer devour the poor. It meant all brokenness would be set right and healed. It meant that people would love one another. For the Jews, the hope of shalom was wrapped up in a person. Someone is coming, they believed, who will open the door to peace. So this promise of this Messiah that would come is someone who's not just bringing, like, calm, but bringing, like, wholeness. And then there's, like, 700 years between Micah and the birth of Jesus. I mean, even just between the Old and New Testament, there's a period of, like, 400 years. Yeah. So part of what I said was sometimes God has us wait, and there are no easy answers for why he does that. I'm not going to pretend or placate like I have some kind of, you know, aha moment for that. Sometimes we just yep. have to sit in the waiting so then we read from Luke chapter 2, and we're going to you know, read a lot of the Christmas story there, but this idea that Jesus came to be our peace, I described four different areas that he's our peace. So there's positional peace, right? It's like peace with God. That's the Romans 5, 1 and 2, that we've been acquitted, made right. Mm-hmm. And then this inner peace idea where John 14, Jesus says, um, the peace that I give you is way different than the peace the world gives. You don't have to be fearful. You don't, you don't have to be worried, yeah. worried or troubled. We talked about communal peace, this idea that you know, Colossians 3 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The word rule there is actually the word umpire. So the, mm-hmm. the the phrase carries with it this idea that, like, let the peace of Christ call the shots. When you feel anxious or overwhelmed or you want to, like, throw a punch back at the person that wronged you. I actually showed a clip from a guy named Phil Wellman. Do you know that name? No, I know. No. Phil Wellman was a uh, – he's a minor league 
minor league manager for the Mississippi Braves in 2007 against the Chattanooga Lookouts. I think he, I know this. He has clip. a total meltdown. Name. And kind of my whole point in showing that was sometimes we feel like Phil Wellman, but the ruling of the umpire still stands. That's what it means to let the peace of Christ actually call the shots. And then we wrapped it up with this idea of missional peace, the idea that we're to actually bring this peace to the world. We're not meant to hoard it. It's not meant to just be for our own kind of kumbaya. And one of the ways that I challenged them to do that was uh, through our gift mart. We have a, a big holiday kind of missional component yep, where yep. we, you know, we, we, all these schools and local surrounding areas. And uh, it's a way to like bring the peace of Christ into a really, you know, broken and hurting world. And it was a, it was a cool, it's for me, it always feels like this great turn to entering into the Christmas season. And I think uh, I'll, I'll just end with this. I don't know if you know Henry Nowen. He says, the marvelous vision of this peaceable kingdom in which all violence has been overcome and all men, women, and children live in loving unity with nature calls for its realization in our day-to-day lives. Instead of being an escapist dream, it challenges us to anticipate what it promises. Every time we forgive our neighbor, every time we make a child smile, every time we show compassion to a suffering person, every time we arrange a bouquet of flowers, offer care to animals, prevent pollution, create beauty in our homes and gardens, and work for peace and justice among peoples and nations, we are making the vision come true. And that was sort of the, the challenge that I left them all with. Oh, that's good, man. I'm looking forward to hearing more about what you guys talk about uh, through the Christmas season. Uh, we hope you found you were at church yesterday. If not, uh, you're always welcome to join us uh, at one of ours as well. Well, coming up next, is the goal to live life without regrets? A well-known pastor spoke about that recently. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life with Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us uh, today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, We are thankful for those of you uh, who have already done that. Well, found this interesting article at the Christian Post. I don't know. Uh, many of you probably know a pastor and an author by the name of John Piper. Uh, and what John Piper does, uh, he has a podcast at desiringgod.org uh, that's just called Ask Pastor John. And uh, people send in questions and he talks, he tries to answer them. And uh, I always laugh, like, I can't imagine, A, I just can't imagine doing this. <laughs> Be like, hey, ask me. I will have an answer. Like I'm like constantly like, nope, don't ask me questions. There we go. I can imagine if it was like, ask Pastor Brian to take out the garbage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> ask Pastor Ian to please do the dishes. Ask him this sports question and he will he will weigh in. But let me read to you what he said. And then I want to get your feel on if you think he's right. Uh, notable Bible teacher and Desiring God founder, John Piper, uh, has taken issue with a popular cultural goal of pursuing, quote, a life without regrets. In an episode of Ask Pastor John posted to Desiring God on Monday, the 72-year-old Piper was asked about his own feelings of regret when looking back at his own life. I can look back at many opportunities I missed in life, he said, mission trips I didn't take, missionaries I didn't support, even professional opportunities I did not take and probably should have, ways to better invest and redeem my time at every stage along the way. Is it possible for an older man to look back over his life and conclude that I frequently missed God's will over the years? Hmm. Uh, or is who I am now the will of God perfectly manifested, and therefore I should have no regrets at all, the man asked. In response, Piper listed four important things to consider when addressing regrets, one of them being that it's good to remember our sins and feel regret. He said, a life without regret is built on a mirage. If you don't see sins when you're looking back over your life and you don't regret those sins, you're not seeing reality. 
You're not feeling reality. You're seeing a mirage. There were plenty of attitudes, words, deeds that were not for the glory of God, but selfish, not loving, but uncaring, not from faith, but from fear. There were plenty of things in his life that came out of uh, my mouth that were not designed for upbuilding and plenty of good paths taken with defective uh, motives. He says, Paul never forgot his regretful past, writing near the end of his life uh, that the saying is trustworthy and deserving that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners for whom I am the foremost. He says that was a regret and he never forgot it. So we'll stop there. Uh, What do you think about this kind of live life without regret? And Piper going, no, that's impossible. Like we're all going to look back and regret. And then if there are people out there over really burdened by regret, what do they do with that? So kind of a two-part question there for you. All right. So first, a plug, if I may. I love it. So Dave and John Ferguson wrote a book a couple years ago called Starting Over, Living Your Life Beyond Regrets. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really good. We actually did a a teaching series based on the book. And uh, I think – their posture is maybe where I would most land. So right. it's not a, it's not a hey, live a life without regrets. That feels like a just a pipe dream. Uh, but I don't know that I would necessarily go as far as Piper does. Like hey, regret is a normal, healthy part of. Yeah. Just because Paul said it doesn't necessarily mean that's like what we should aspire to. So part of what the book does is to help give tools, and this is something that David John are so good at, is like making very practical. Uh, what often feels very nebulous, mm-hmm. you know? So this idea that, okay, you first have to recognize them. You have to be able to call them what they are. Yep. And then he talks about learning to release them and then eventually even redeem them. Mm-hmm. I think, because I think, and I think Piper would agree with this. So often the stuff, the mistakes that we make in the past, if we can actually entrust them into the hands of Jesus, there is a redemption that goes on that forms us into the people that we are. Yeah. And one of the, I remember one of the illustrations that we used in the sermon series was, um, have you ever seen those clips of dogs that have like sticks in their mouths that are like really like much wider yeah. than the door they're trying Good to go stuff. through, you know, yeah. and they just keep trying to like slam through the door. We're like, that's often what we do with our regrets. Like we hold on to them and it prevents us from like walking through whatever the next phase of our life is supposed to be. And we think we really need to hold on to them. I think yeah. a lot of that can be, you know, sort of self-flagellating or we feel like there's some sort of purification that's going on by me continuing to Mm kind of like white knuckle grip this awful thing that I did. And I think Piper is right that remorse is a big part of that, right? I think that's part of what, you know, even the Sermon on the Mount is about is like recognizing like, oh yeah, this is bad. This Mm -hmm. is, there should be some level of guilt. And we often talk about the difference between guilt and shame. Yeah, we are guilty of this mistake or this error or this shortcoming. But the shame piece, I think, isn't from God. I don't mm-hmm. think that was ever meant to be a part of the equation. I, f- I feel like grace is the antidote to shame. And I think there is uh, something to be said about owning like, yep, I did this thing and that was really awful and it really mistreated other people and it really misrepresented me and God. Um, and it is a process, I think, to actually letting go of that. And they talk about, you know, they call it the, the sorry cycle where we, we all have these longings and then we often yeah. make these mistakes that kind of keep us in this pattern of you know continuing to make mistakes and not actually letting them go or redeem them. And either way, it's a really, really helpful, useful book mm-hmm. and something that I think so many people have found really helpful because that's something that I think we all honestly wrestle with to yeah. some degree. Yeah. Where do you think this – is he right about there being this cultural norm of no regrets? Yeah. And where does that come from? Because regret seems like a natural thing, like, oh, I wish I'd done that or I wish I'd done that. Why do we want to even – put that out there that like, oh, you can live a life of no regrets. Where do you think that's coming from culturally? Um, 
I think a lot of that comes from a sincere desire for sort of a free spirit, mm-hmm. kind of no attachment way of living, which again is probably something to a point that is worth pursuing. But the life beyond regrets thing, I think in a lot of ways is birthed from a lack of desire to be held accountable for stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. So like, yeah, you, you can have no regrets even if maybe you should have, yeah. or you, you know, I know people are like, I feel no remorse for that. And everyone else in the room is like, Hey, you probably should be, be at least a little sad about yes. that decision or you that. You should be regretting your lack of remorse. Right, now. <laughs> right. Right. But I don't know that. And again, Dave and John mentioned this in the book, regret in and of itself doesn't do a whole lot mm-hmm. other than really kind of hold us back. But when we can actually learn to call it what it is and own it, that's part of the nature of confession. Confession isn't pretending that you didn't make a mistake. It's not just saying, you know, in the face of your sin, no regrets. Yeah, yeah. It's saying, God, before a loving father, I am bringing this to you, and I'm not making any excuses, and I'm not dancing around it at all. I made this mistake. And then allowing just the grace and love and mercy of Jesus to actually wash over us. I think that's part of what confession is intended to do, not, you know, belittle or diminish the thing that you did, yeah. but like in the face of that, say, oh, and I'm still loved. I'm yeah. still forgiven. You know? Yeah. No, that's really good. So. Closing this out, the person out there who's gone way too far the other way, uh, they're just living, they're wallowing in their regrets, right? Mm -hmm. They're just, they're just burdened by their regrets. What would you, what's a word of of hope or advice that you would give to them? Because they're like, man, everything about my attitude right now is regretting what the past has been. Yeah, I I think one of the things that we like to say a lot is you are far more than the best or worst thing you've ever mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. And I think we're often inclined to one or both of those extremes. And I think for Jesus to intentionally come after us in the midst of our brokenness and sin, when we could do nothing to earn and deserve it, mm-hmm. should show us that his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness is far greater than any amount of decisions or wrong turns or toxicity that we could ever possibly. There's yeah. nothing that, we could do that is more powerful than the cross and the resurrection. And I think learning to call those things what they are and to find, find ourselves in the midst of loving community that pursues us and loves us even in the midst of that, I think is one of the best things that we can do. That's great, man. That's, that's very pastoral of you today. Yeah, thanks. And uh, we hope that's helpful for you out there. Well, we're glad you're joining us today on this Monday. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, hopefully. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life with Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Uh, glad to have you joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Common Good Talk. <laughs> we are on the interwebs, 1160hope.com. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review, and uh, we would be uh, appreciative for those of you uh, who do that. Well, there was a... Uh, there was a, a clip from Joel Osteen floating around Twitter the other day. I've heard of him. Uh, and here, let me just start here. I'm going to set you up here. What is your, have you listened to any Joel Osteen yeah. stuff? What's oh, yeah. your general impression of him? Why don't, why don't we listen to the audio first and then I'll give you my I only bring this up for general. various reasons. I shouldn't have set you up that way. <laughs> I actually had a conversation with a guy the other day who used to live in Houston. And he's like, listen, that guy takes a really bad rap. I went to his church for like three years and yeah. it was monumental in my life. And I was like. Huh. He's like, the caricature is kind of true, but it's also not true. And you're like, oh. That's actually pretty close to my assessment. I feel like I'm not a, uh, I'm not a true, proper, edgy millennial because sometimes I'll hear him say stuff and I go, okay. Yeah. 
I don't. I wouldn't say it like that, and I wouldn't base a whole sermon around that. Yeah. But people are like, "Oh, he's a total snake." I, I mean, I think he's a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'll see him in heaven. I have all sorts of issues with his theology yeah. and some of his general approach. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that, I, honestly, there have been times where I've seen clips and go, "All right, that was hopeful." That's a lot of hope in a really hopeless world. Yep. I'll, I'll high five that now again. I have to scrutinize and put on my other hat and like, yes. oh yeah, but this next twenty seven minutes though is so off. Yeah, which yeah. I again I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag here for this segment, but yeah, I, it, I, I'm not as I'm not as ready to pounce yeah. on him as people think I should be. Yep, <laughs> except for this kind of clip that we're about to play. That's uh, true. Too now, in all fairness, this clip is from five years ago, which Whoa. is, is a, it does raise the topic of like, don't always assume everything you see on Twitter or Facebook is from last week. Right. Uh, because I think when, I don't know when you saw this, but when uh, you had sent it to me, when I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, did he just say that? <laughs> like, this is crazy. I could tell by his haircut, though. That's a total 2014 <laughs> haircut. <laughs> That's funny. And so this is from five years ago, but we wanted to play it because, uh, yeah, just here, let's just play it. And then we will talk about it. This is Joel Osteen from five years ago, a sermon that he did. When you're poor, broke, and defeated, all that proves is that you're poor, broke, and defeated. It doesn't bring any honor to God. If I brought my two children up on the platform today and their clothes were all raggedy, worn out, holes in their shoes, hair not combed, you would look at me and think, what kind of father is he? It'd be a poor reflection on me. Listen, when you look good, dress good, live in a nice place, excel in your career, generous with others, that brings a smile to God's face. It brings him pleasure to prosper you. Uh, thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's wrong. I, I think um, the part that I, I will agree with, I think that God is a gift giver. I think he loves giving good gifts to his kids. I think it gets all sorts of messy when we inextricably tie material wealth to the gifts of God. Mm-hmm. I think that's always problematic. I think it's always been problematic. I think it sometimes is the case. Yeah. I don't think it's always wrong when someone says, man, I, I feel like God has really blessed us with this job or with this house yeah. or this gift. I've literally seen people – gifted vehicles seemingly out of nowhere because their family really needed a car and it just was a nice car or it was a really great opportunity or someone gifted their kids an expensive education. I don't think that is outside of the provision of God, but to say that it only is, is for me at least where it starts to get really problematic. Not to mention, by the way, we're in December, so we can go here a little bit. Jesus Christ himself born, what, to a wealthy family or a poor family, (laughs) right? To an established couple or someone on the fringe, like his friends stuck by his side or they abandoned him, Mm -hmm. right? Like lived out his years or was nailed to a cross. Like there's there's a lot of this mantra that I think is often found in prosperity gospel preaching that, man, God wants you to be happy, uh, constantly comfortable with good relationships and lots of money. To me- uh, excludes Jesus himself, which yeah, at the very least should give us pause. Like, oh, maybe there's a broader spectrum to this. And I think, uh, and one of the things I appreciate about communities, I get to uh, encounter and have conversations with church planners and leaders from all over the globe. Mm-hmm. And to get there, you know, we had Charles on the show last weekend yep. uh, or last week and talking, you know, some of his experience in Africa and, and realizing that when we make statements like, oh, you, you're not honoring God if you don't have 
the nicest clothes, the nicest car, the nicest house. I'm not saying any of those things necessarily are bad, but there are all sorts of pretty intense warnings in Scripture about letting that material wealth be our driving force or be the barometer, the acid test of whether or not God is engaged in our life. I just think that line of thinking uh, is super, super dangerous. Yeah, and and it's that picture of uh, where he says, uh, it's a bad reflection on your father uh, if you're disheveled and don't have money and don't have, you know, you're, you're all of these things. Uh, but that when you have money and these other things, it's a good reflection on your father. And it makes me think back. We've all been on trips, right? It makes me think back when I got to spend, you know, uh, like 10 days in, in Rwanda. And, and you're with these these churches that have nothing. And they are, uh, to use his logic, to, to keep teasing out his logic goes like this, that God is not happy with that church. Yeah, God is not pleased uh, with their worship because they're a bad reflection upon their father. That is, uh, yeah, that I just know having been in those situations, those are some of the most uh, worshipful, joyous, uh, Jesus-devoted places I've ever been in the world. <laughs> and, yeah, right. And that's really hard to say. Let me ask you this question. Besides, we both think his theology is 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 off on this one. Uh, in what way is it dangerous for people to hear that and go, amen, I'm in with that, I'm in with that? Where where does that bring danger? I think one of the dangers that seems most obvious to me is that the assumption is that if God isn't raining down material wealth on me like some celestial pinata, then either something's wrong with God or something's wrong with me, mm. right? So if God's not blessing me the way that I have been told he's supposed to, then either I'm not praying hard enough or God's mad at me or God doesn't exist or, you know, I somehow screwed up or like you were talking earlier, like I did something so regrettable that God's hands are tied and can't bless me. Like there is so much in scripture about God's heart and posture towards the poor and the oppressed, not to mention Jesus himself saying things like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom. He's saying this is the stuff that will so often entangle us and distract us and when religious institutions make it the bullseye, mm. I th- I think part of the danger is with that, well now we just want God for the stuff He gives yeah. rather than rather than God yeah and we do this in all sorts of ways right you know any of the like God I'll follow you if yep. or I'll follow you when mm-hmm. whatever you fill in that blank with that's your actual God that's the thing that you're you know what I mean any of those qualifiers and I think money is just an easy one but we do it in all sorts of other ways probably less noticeable ways I just think. You know, standing in an amphitheater like this with a big fancy, and again, it's all relative. You know, I remember railing years ago on a on a church locally that had built a waterfall, and I remember thinking like, waterfall. I was you know ranting to a friend back home. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Waterfall. I just was so, I was I was so like put off by that. And somewhere in the conversation, I was talking about our coffee, and he goes, "Wait, you serve coffee every single Sunday?" Mm. And I was like, "Well, yeah." And he goes, "Man." I would kill to be able to afford to give coffee every Sunday at my church. Wow. And I was like, man, that was so convicting. Yep, I was like yep, the yep. thing that for me was like a baseline. He was like, oh, if we could only get to that point. Just so I want to yeah. recognize that you know, some of that is a little bit relative. but Yeah, it, but it's such a dangerous theology. This is why we talk about the prosperity gospel a lot on here, the prosperity teaching, uh, because for two reasons. It's really dangerous and it's really attractive. Like, yeah, that's uh, why it's dangerous. Yes, and there's a reason that prosperity gospel churches are some of the biggest ones uh, in our country and around the world. And uh, again, I, we're, 
I haven't listened to know enough Joel Osteen to know that, you know, what percent of his theology is off. And you should. And not. I would encourage you to do it. But in this case, what he says there, folks, is really dangerous, is really dangerous. And we'd encourage you if you uh, are somebody who, who really agrees with what he said there, we'd encourage you to kind of play it out. Just play it out in your mind about what some of the ramifications of this are and could be. So we'd love to hear from you on this. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, an article out of Forbes magazine, how college in prison turns around lives and saves taxpayers money. We're going to talk about college and churches and prison coming up next. Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life with Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. If you want to continue reading some of the articles we talk about, including the one we're about to do, uh, or just continue the conversation. We will often post stuff that we don't even talk about on the show. Uh, you can find those things on our Facebook page. That's the Common Good Radio Show, the Common Good uh, Radio Show. Also on Twitter, we put them there too, at Common Good Talk. Uh, find us online at 1160hope.com. And as always, find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, we're just glad to have you with us here on this Monday evening. Uh, Forbes magazine, a couple days ago, ran an article entitled this, How College in Prison Turns Around Lives and Saves Taxpayers Money. Hmm. Uh, It's all about a uh, PBS documentary called College Behind Bars that began to air on November the 25th on PBS. uh, And the show focuses on one particular college in prison program, the Bard Prison Initiative, known as BPI. Uh, It's part of Bard College, a small private university in New York State, and it enrolls just over 300 students, all of them serving time inside six different uh, New York State prisons. So this show is four hours long, but the stories are of individual prisoners, and the program as a whole uh, is kind of gripping in that it has a very high level of college taught. And what they're finding is those that do the college, uh, uh, the recidivism rate was much uh, lower. 97.5% of those who go through the BPI program who graduate, 97.5% never go back to prison. Wow. On the other hand, two thirds, 67.8 of released prisoners were arrested uh, of general population within three years of release and over three quarters, 76.6 were rearrested within five years. So if you take wow. that, over two-thirds to three-quarters are rearrested, but almost virtually 100% who go through this program uh, do not get rearrested. What do those statistics – when you read those statistics, what does that tell you? So I'm not a statistician mm-hmm. at all, and the more that I learn about statistics, the more I realize how much I, I just don't know. So I'm trying to put on my statistician cap yep. because I could hear some of them saying – People that I know that are much more adept at reading numbers like this Who saying, always tell us this on Facebook, like, oh, you missed it. Oh, yeah, okay. which I totally understand. <laughs> yeah. You're not wrong. Uh, some of it could potentially be a cart or horse discussion. Mm. Are the people that make it through the program already less likely to be arrested when they're released because of their particular drive? Because is there something in their makeup prior to their education that already makes them less likely to be rearrested? Or does the education actually have that big of an impact uh, that something happens in their brain and heart as a result of that that gives them an opportunity once they're released to you know contribute to society the way that they really all long to do anyway? To me, and I, 
I've been kind of banging this drum for a long time that I think education is a key, if not the key to this particular discussion. Now, you know, at community, we've started planting churches and prisons. Yeah. I think that's another massively integral part. We've already, I mean, we've only been doing it for a short while. We're already starting to hear stories of life change. Really? What are some of those stories? I think just people that are, I think, encountering God in a cerebral sense or an experiential sense, but also with community. And I'm, we, uh, we commissioned them actually our community freedom team uh, yesterday. So we, we had all the volunteers up on the stage and uh, I led the church in a prayer for them and got to meet some of the volunteers. And one of them's a chaplain with the prison, just talking about the impact, the stories that he's experiencing of life change from people that um, as best they can tell may not ever even be released. Yeah. So I think there's, tremendous value in planting churches and prisons. And I think that's something that I would love to see us continue to grow in. But the Can I edu- ask you real fast yeah, before sure. we get back to the education thing? Sure. Help people and myself too understand what it means to plant a church in a prison. Who's the pastor of that pres- of that church? So for us, it's Eric Dorsey. Okay. He, he uh, He's a part of the community freedom team. He oversees community freedom and he's also the uh, like the campus pastor, so to speak, gotcha. at the Juliet Treatment Center. So there's, you know, music and there's a pastor and we're going to have small groups and we're going to have all sorts of, uh, yeah, yeah. That's really fascinating. Which is tough, which is why it's been such a long journey because you have, you know, there's all sorts of um, people you got to get to sign off on that. And obviously when you're bringing people into a prison, right. there's a lot of hoops to jump through, a lot of red tape for good reason, you know? Yep. Um, but I, I think part of what this article is asserting is that when we help give people the tools and resources to succeed, there is a real practical, measurable, empirical benefit, not just for the individual, but also for the institution. That's that's the other peg of this whole article. It's not just that it's good for them. It also saves taxpayers money. And I think for me, I think the prison system has a lot of aspects that need to be rethought. Yeah. You know, we've talked earlier even about like the nature of addiction and how necessary it is for human contact and connection to overcome addiction. And often what we do in prisons is the opposite. Is we isolate them from each other. So new brain science, uh, new studies, I think have shown some of the faults in some of these systems that we've always checked off on. And I think this is a direction I, I would love to see us continue to go in. Yeah, this is a fascinating paragraph right here. It says, it's natural that some object to college prison programs because people who did bad things are getting a free education while so many law-abiding citizens cannot afford to go to college. But this author says thinking such thinking is short-sighted that according to the Wall Street Journal, the average annual cost for each person in a New York state prison is $69,000. And by state data and the Bard Prison Initiative says its college program costs about $9,000 for each student yearly. In other words, a successful prison uh, college program saves taxpayers an enormous amount of money. And then this is money that theoretically could be used to expand college access for everybody. Uh, And so the real question behind this is what is the goal of our prison systems? What are we trying to accomplish? Uh, Because part of it is uh, punitive. Part of it is you did a bad thing. You need to be punished. But it's good for our culture if if uh, we do things that are going to decrease the opportunity that people are going to go back, that people are going to go back. And it seems pretty clear here that things like churches, but in this article, things like education severely swing the pendulum in a way where people are actually being rehabilitated, which I don't know what you think. It feels like that's the goal of prison. Yeah, and I think you know the article makes an interesting point, too, that BPI can really only handle 300 students, yep. but 
more than 10,000 people are released from state and federal prisons every single week. So that number alone is not just unbelievable. It's kind of overwhelming. You know, I think it's easy for us to sit in a you know radio studio and talk about this particular mm-hmm. program and applaud them. But to, for me, at least, to step back and say, okay, there's so much more that needs to be done. And, you know, they're even starting to quote people in this article that like, hey, I'm, I'm not an exceptional person. I, I just was given an exceptional opportunity. I think that even that optimism. You know, one of the things that the chaplain was telling me yesterday was just the the overwhelming despondency, the lack of optimism that a lot of these prisoners feel. My buddy Louis Dooley even talking about like, oh, I'm going to die here. Like this was his – that was his plan. Like I don't think we really have an understanding of the mental state of someone who uh, – even let's say it's even just 25 years. You're, you know that the next quarter century, you're locked up in a building. I don't think you and I have any real sense of like the cognitive weight that that leaves a person with yep. and something like an education I think it's just a really really powerful way to combat that yeah I think that's as a culture I, I know we've done a couple stories about this in the last couple of weeks we have to wrestle with like what's the point of prison and if one of them is rehabilitation right. and sending you out one graduate of this program even put it this way our interactions with the professors modeled for us our interactions with our future bosses that's great like it, it served as a model uh, and so let, let me read the last paragraph. Again, this is Evan Gerstman. Uh, he wrote this article at Forbes. Uh, he says, America is having a healthy discussion about mass incarceration, but much of the rhetoric is steeped in wishful thinking. Listening to some politicians and activists, one would think that our prisons are mostly filled with nonviolent prisoners serving long sentences for little more than smoking a joint. On the contrary, while there are plenty of drug dealers in prison, most people in state prisons are serving time for crimes such as murder, rape, assault, robbery, manslaughter, and burglary. If this country, he writes, is going to be serious about reducing the number of incarcerated people, it must be serious about reducing the recidivism rate for people who have committed major, often violent crimes. They deserve to serve time, he says, but they also deserve a chance to redeem themselves. Hmm. BPI and similar initiatives show a way forward. Do you think he pretty much wrapped that up well there? Yeah, I think that's powerfully said, man. Yeah. And so I would say for us as Christ followers, the question becomes, uh, do we believe in redemption? And do we believe that even the people sitting in prisons uh, are are redeemable through the grace of Jesus Christ? And then, you know, cheer on churches like yours, man, who are doing that in the church, in the prisons. Uh, I think that is that is really I know we don't like to say praiseworthy about churches, but I think that's really praiseworthy and something to be admired and for all of us to be challenged by. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. We're glad to have you with us here on this Cyber Monday, this Monday afternoon. Thank you for taking a break from your Amazon purchases to join us a little bit. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that joke was prime. <laughs> don't nice. d- don't encourage was me. Was it that, delivered well? Oh boy, <laughs> we're just droning on and on. It's really funny. Oh, I could be selling out my wife or my family here, but uh, <laughs> good good we, intro. Uh, we you know I told you we went away for a couple days over Thanksgiving here. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, my wife has made a good number of our purchases for Christmas over uh, through Amazon or whatever. And so we literally paid 
the boy neck who lives like right behind us to come over every day and just put, put all the boxes in our house. Nice. And we walked in yesterday. <laughs> it oh, was like, <laughs> oh, I just looked around and it was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and so it's that time of year. Sometimes, yeah. Anyway, I can't imagine how the FedEx people seem like they're at our house all the time. So uh, there was an article kind of along those lines at Patheos descri- uh, entitled this, How to Be a Busy Parent and Pray Without Ceasing. How to Be a Busy Parent and Pray Without Ceasing. So let me read to you the story at the beginning. It says, The Issue of Time. Catherine McNeil, who we're assuming is the Catherine McNeil we've had on the show. Yeah, she's uh, awesome. Catherine McNeil, with a baby on the way, managed to get some time away from her other two children to attend a Christian conference. She describes listening to a speaker passionately drive home his point about prayer, insisting that at least an hour in solitude and silence per day were essential, quote, if we have a genuine commitment to knowing God. There I was, she wrote, ground to a halt once again. This simple suggestion of solitude stole my breath away. She mused how she couldn't remember a time when she went to the bathroom by herself, let alone get an hour of (laughs) solitude. The experience left her feeling inadequate and excluded from her own spiritual life. The narrative that solitude and silence are the only way to access union with God is a prevalent one that leaves more than just a few parents feeling like their prayer life is always falling short. As I, this being the author, pondered this dilemma, one small passage in the New Testament came to me and threw the solitude and silence formula for a loop. Pastors like the speaker Catherine listened listened to tend to overlook two jolting words in 1 Corinthians, pray unceasingly. So before we get into how how to do this uh, and and this kind of uh, busyness of life and what it does to our prayer life, I'm curious if you can relate to that. You're the one with little kids in the room here. Not actually in the room, (laughs) but the two of us who have little kids. Wait, are they here? I know. (laughs) Oh, there they are. Uh, Is this something you can relate to? Uh, or you've heard your wife relate to uh, do you, what do you think about when you read this yeah i, I think uh you know rest and sabbath is i have a weird relationship with it cuz it's a it's a topic that i care deeply about that i execute very poorly yeah. and i think i used to be a lot better at it before kids and you know all of the expectations that come with that but honestly like w- what i do is a fraction of what my wife does and yes. she's launched this this jewelry business now so a lot of it is like this juggling of two little ones and then, you know, desperately trying to, like, get stuff, you know, done while they're napping. And, you know, like we woke up today and my youngest is all snotty-nosed and he's coughing. And so that's, you know, you just know that's going to require a little more attention. So, I, yeah, I can I can certainly relate to this, but I would be remiss to not say that I, I think my, my wife is swimming much deeper in these waters because she's, you know, she's home with them all day. So the yep. the frustration, I think, even of, like, hoping to get this small window of time to do – X, Y, and Z, yep. and then nap schedule gets thrown off or somebody swings by, whatever it is, you know, it's like, well, there goes the, the 32 plan. minutes yep. that I had planned on. I can remember my wife when it was always whenever nap, whenever nap time went badly, it yeah. was like I lost my time and it threw the whole day off. Yeah. And, it feels uh, like you've been robbed almost like, oh, I was planning on that. Yep. The author goes on to write. If indeed solitude and silence are the main requirements in our prayer lives, then we must all become monastics to make this baffling command fit into our lives. Clearly, that's impossible. Not everyone can be a monastic. And as St. Paul wrote those words to the Thessalonians, he wrote them to a thriving community of people with jobs and families, not monastics. 
if we are to pray unceasingly, we're going to have to rethink the fundamentals of both prayer and time. Have you ever preached on this passage? Pray without ceasing, pray, uh, or let, not whether you have or not. How would you talk to, all right, you're a pastor of a church in Naperville. Uh, you've got, whether it's people who've got busy family lives or people who are working many multiple hours or whatever, how do you talk to them about prayer, about this unceasingness of prayer, this kind of lifestyle of prayer, uh, slowing down? How do you talk to your people about this? You know, it depends on what the context is, but what I often find is that people have a completely unrealistic expectation of what prayer is supposed to look like. Hmm. I mean, people all the time, you know, that are, one, maybe they're nervous to pray because, like, I don't know the right words. And other people think, well, I have to have, like, a prayer closet where yes. I am facing a certain direction and there has to be incense and you know, <laughs> music underscoring the whole moment. So the first the first real task, I think, is helping, you know, people understand that prayer is conversation mm. and that you can do that while you're driving. You can do that in the shower. You can do that while waiting in line at the grocery store. I think that's part of the not ceasing part. I think it's like a lot of things, though. You know, Paul David Tripp talks about this idea of mission not being something you add to your life, but it just is life. Mm. I think prayer is the same way. It's not like, you know, a lot of exhausted parents will hear talks about prayer and like, great, that's one more thing I have yeah. to schedule into my already overwhelmed schedule. It's like, no, 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 it's a way of seeing all of life. It's a way of living in the world. And I think this idea of prayer being talking and listening, it's formation. It is, it's a way of stepping into this sort of like divine vitality. It's not this <sighs> All right, from 315 to 345, I need to. Now, I think that's important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think solitude, I think disciplining yourself for some of those like really focused spaces you were even just talking about while you were away, just the joy of a cabin yep. that is detached yep. a bit from all the buzz of technology. And, yep. you know, I think those things are really, really important and helpful. But to help kind of understand, to kind of bring prayer to a different perspective for people who feel like I have to do it a, a certain right way yeah. is what I think keeps a lot of people from even even wanting to approach a text that says something like, oh, pray without ceasing. I don't even know how to pray, so I'm just going to avoid it. Yeah, I had somebody uh, a little while ago ask me to pray for them that they would understand how to pray. Mm. And I thought that was such an interesting – that was a really humble prayer, right? Like, Yeah. Because how many of us just fake it? Like, oh, yeah, no, this – but right. But prayer's confusing, and then the whole pray without ceasing, and we're like, oh, do I have to have my eyes closed all day? Do I have to be a monastic? Uh, but instead – Uh, What the author of this is saying, she writes, in other words, spiritual practice is not necessarily something we have to set aside time to accomplish, but it is simply a shift in our own consciousness to allow in what is in each moment. It's kind of Mm. this uh, knowing what's going on around you is a holy moment, right? So uh, spin this forward to Sabbath. How do you speak about Sabbath? to people, again, who have little kids at home or who have Monday through Friday jobs where they're working 50, 60 hours a week. Uh, what does this concept of rest and Sabbath look like, say, out here in the western suburbs? Well, we so we only have a couple minutes left, but I, I would point to Abraham Joshua Heschel's book, The Sabbath, which is actually mentioned even in this article. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of really great um, resources on how to actually approach that. To me, Sabbath, so the word Sabbath is the word Shabbat, which literally just means to cease, to stop. And I think sometimes we say, I'll stop once I finish this email or once I finish this report. No, Sabbath is about stopping because it's time to stop. Mm -hmm. And I think at the core of a lot of that isn't just busyness. I think it's about desire. I think the reason that we continue to chase after things, continue to, you know, a lot of that is sort of forced upon us, especially with kids. But this idea of like sanctifying time or redeeming time or seeing 
that time isn't something to like possess or hold, but a way of like entering into, oh, God is here too. God is a part of these mm. small, sacred, ordinary moments. And I think asking for some of that perception to ask God to open our eyes to see every moment as charged with the grandeur of God, I think is part of what helps make Sabbath possible. Sabbath isn't just like, you know, adding a day at the gym. It's not just like, oh, it's shifting your diet. It's a, it's a way of living in the world. And I think Sabbath as a day is important, but also Sabbath as a posture, I think is equally as important. Yeah, it's so good. I, you referenced that I was telling you off air here about like my weekend being away and how like, even in the day-to-day of life, we assume that we can't slow down or we can't disconnect. But then right. when we do, it's really life-giving. Right. It's the most – it's kind of confusing, right? Like, oh, I can't stop. I can't stop. It's going to be burdensome if I stop. And then you stop and you're like, man, that was my favorite part of my day. <laughs> that right. was totally uh, the best part of my day. And so we'd encourage you out there to uh, read the article and, and kind of wrestle with uh, what does – what is your rhythm of rest? What is your rhythm – of prayer and and what does it even mean to be praying without ceasing to be kind of going with God throughout your day we'd encourage your feedback too you could do so at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show well coming up next we're going to end the show the way we ended every week every day uh, with some interweb insanity that's next here on the Common Good AM Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet <clears throat> here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm, and we say that music, but just that crazy open can only mean one thing, and that is uh, interweb insanity. This is the time where this week, today, it's going to be our executive producer, Keith Conrad. He gives us crazy stories that he's found on the internet. We have not seen them. We're just going to read them. Uh, And then the, the, the funny sound clips come from his mind as well, so... But they come from the internet. Keith's mind is a dangerous place to climb into, but we're about to do it. I don't think we're climbing into his mind. Metaphorically speaking. Metaphorically. So, all right, man, you go first. All right, out of Missouri, police rescue dogs sucked up by a robot vacuum. <laughs> oh, boy. A Baldwin police responded to a call on, like any other Friday, a family dog sucked up by a robotic vacuum. I just said that. A I called 911 because I figured somebody's got to be able to help me. The owner, Megan Dunavant, said her 14-pound elderly Shih Tzu Stonewall, that's a funny name for a dog that was sucked up by a vacuum, was trapped. The robotic vacuum had shut off right next to him, and when Dunavant looked more closely, she realized his tail was caught inside. He's alligator rolling, trying to get loose and freaking out, she said. Megan, with the newborn at home, was freaking out, too. I'm all alone. This is awful. This is like something out of a movie. You can't make this up, she said. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop. Ever. (laughs) Ah, Next one's out of Louisiana. Chihuahua drives owner's SUV across busy road. I believe it's pronounced Chihuahua. (laughs) Chihuahua. Chihuahua. Police in Louisiana shared security camera footage from an incident at a gas station involving a chihuahua that managed to drive its owner vehicle across the street. Slidell police shared security camera footage footage from the Gauss Boulevard gas station where a five-pound chihuahua had been left alone inside an SUV. Dog themes today. Police said the chihuahua knocked the SUV into reverse due to a mechanical issue that allowed the transmission to change gears without the brake being engaged. The video shows the SUV rolling backward across a busy street as cars speed past. It's a miracle that no one was seriously injured and that no other vehicles were struck during this incident, police wrote. Let this be a lesson to everyone 
to please use caution when leaving your pets inside your vehicle. Oh, Yo quiero Taco Bell. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking. I could have guessed that one. All right, up next is Michigan, America's High Five. Man using magnets fishes World War I-era grenade from Michigan River. Oh. A magnet-wheeling angler has fished a World War I-era grenade from a western Michigan river. Wood TV reports the angler found the explosive Tuesday after dangling the magnet from a bridge in the Grand River in Grand Rapids. Joseph Alexander told the television station he thought it looked like a grenade, but not one. What? <laughs> thought it looked like a grenade, but not one? Oh. He'd seen before. before. <laughs> Why did the quotes end there? <laughs> that was super weird. Alexander said he posted photos of it online and people commented that it was a grenade and he should call police. Grand Rapids police say the device is a German. Oh, gosh. Granite when Werfer. How's that? Granatenwerfer. Granatenwerfer. Sounds delicious. And that it will be stored until detonation. Until detonation safety, Sergeant John Witkowski <laughs> said, said since the device was so old and had been submerged for a long time, it likely was no longer very dangerous. <laughs> Did you see the last line there? Alexander said magnet fishing is a hobby. Have you ever heard of magnet I fishing before? I have not. We need to get out more, apparently. So you're just trying to find like debris on the floor, on the, on the bottom of the river? Debris? Yeah, I think so. Magnet fishing. That sounds kind of cool. I d- <laughs> does. I'm in. You would like magnet. It's the same as the guy with the metal detector it on the is. beach, right? But tell me when you're on the beach, you see him, you're like, I want to do that. <laughs> I've never had that thought. Next one's out of New Jersey. <laughs> you just did your home state. I will now do my home oh, state. Oh, exciting. Two women brawl over accusations of too many items in express checkout lane. That sounds like New Jersey. Uh, it really does. Authorities say two women brawled in a Monmouth County supermarket after one accused the other of having too many items in an express checkout lane. The fright, the fight at the shop right in Howell broke out shortly before noon Thursday. Authorities say a 43-year-old brick woman, brick is the name of a town, not her. <laughs> not was, like she's a brick house. was challenged by a 45-year-old Howell woman over the number of items she had in the express checkout. Their verbal dispute soon turned physical with both women allegedly throwing punches and biting each other. Wow. Witnesses said the brick woman also scratched and bit the leg of the... 43-year-old Freehold Township woman who tried to intervene. All three women were treated for minor injuries. The two women involved in the fight were both charged with disorderly conduct. The brick woman was also charged with simple assault. You're trying to have a civilization here. It just never tells us if they had too many items. Yeah. (laughs) I just never thought I'd find the phrase brick woman. (laughs) Brick woman. So bizarre. All right. Last but not least, Washington State. Man drives from Minnesota to Washington to reunite terminally ill woman with her dog. Aw. Over the weekend, a Minnesota man drove thousands of miles to help reunite a terminally ill woman with her dog. It all started when the Burnsville woman went to her veterinarian clinic Friday and explained her predicament. The woman only has a few months to live, and she needs to live with her friend who can help her. Her friend happens to live in Washington, and when the woman tried to board the plane, she was told her dog, Bailey, a pug mix, was not allowed to fly as they can have trouble breathing. So the veterinarian clinic called local nonprofit canine rescue group Spot's Last Stop Spot's Last Stop matches local families with homeless dogs in need of forever homes. Ryan Chikuski and his wife foster dogs in their Shakopee? Shakopee home. And when his wife learned about Bailey, she thought of her husband, who happens to love the Pacific Northwest. Ryan said after his wife told him about Bailey, he decided he could make the 27-hour drive to reunite the woman with her beloved dog. Are you crying? Am I crying? No, I'm not crying. <laughs> You're crying. 
Ending on a high note. That yeah, was my nice. goodness. What a story. That's a good way to go, Keith. Way, way to, to go, Keith. Oh, engaged, Keith. Engaged, Keith. We're glad you joined us today. Join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6. Free and Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.